Before our brother Gene comes to read the scripture this morning, I want to introduce our speaker to you. We have a pastoral residency program at our church that has really been very influential, not only in our church, but in the lives of men who are um, gifted uh, uniquely for ministry. We've deployed those men outside of this church, some inside of this church. And the speaker this morning is um, Tim Whitney, who is our newest pastoral resident. In fact, his title is Lead Pastor Resident, which means that Tim is coming alongside my role, which is the first time that we've done this, because Tim has some exceptional gifts for ministry. After a seven-year career in the Navy, he graduated from Liberty University, then got his master's degree at um, uh, Southwestern. He's been so many places that I forget which one it is, Southwestern, and now is in a PhD program at uh, Midwestern Seminary. And um, Tim is gonna come alongside um, me and participate in a number of significant elder and governance level sort of uh, uh, projects that we're working on together. And then also to lead the team researching what our next campus would look like and where we would put it. And so um, Tim has served as uh, a pastor in uh, two other churches prior to coming to College Park Church. And so I want you to be sure to welcome he and his wife Megan to our church family. And our brother Gene's going to come read the scripture. So let's get our Bibles. Let's open them to the book of 2 Peter. Let's get ready to receive the word from Gene and then also from our brother Tim. Good morning, church family. I'm Tim. Nice to meet all of you for the first time. Those are really nice things Mark said. And so I'm going to say some nice things too. He won't like it, but I have the microphone and he can't stop me. One of the things that brought me here uh, is Mark. You know, it's true in life that you end up like those under whose authority you place yourself. You know that for your kids, you know that for yourself, you know that for, your, uh, uh, for the family around you. And so when I saw what was going on at College Park, when we began to talk, I thought, I, I gotta go there. And uh, the Lord confirmed that. Sometimes I get ahead of them, I don't know if you do that. But then on top of that, I thought, I, I wanna be like that. And so you are blessed at this church to have a godly, lead pastor who brings the word week in and week out. Yeah, that's good. And so uh, if you're a first-time guest this morning, I just want to invite you back next week. Don't judge the church on today's preaching, okay? So come on back. Mark will be back up. So turn with me in your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1. That's where we'll be if you aren't there already. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning uh, in verse 2. I know we just read verses 3 through 8, but I'm going to go from verse 2 all the way through verse 15. Uh, All those nice things he said. One of the things you learned, I was in the Navy for seven years. I was a Navy diver, and one time we were uh, diving underneath a submarine, a nuclear submarine. They have a bunch of compartments underneath them. They're called ballast tanks. Ballast tanks give ballast to a submarine to help it float when it needs to float, and they empty out to sink when they need to sink. And uh, we were up in there, and what you do when you go up, because submarines have all sorts of things underneath them, right? Just imagine a warship. They go to war, and so they have things that help them go to war and fight war. And so in ballast tanks, you go up and you do work, but you have to dive underneath the water in order to get in. Well, to check the air, they do this test. And uh, the test came back that the air was poisonous, and so I had to keep my helmet on. And as I was breathing in and out, suddenly my helmet stopped breathing. Right? Now, if anyone has ever dove before or you go underneath, you know what that feels like. And so I thought, well, that's, that's not good, right? 
Now, I'm no pulmonologist or lung doctor, if that's the right word. I had to look that up. I'm not that. Uh, but, but I imagine that 10 out of 10 doctors would say that breathing is important to life, right? And so I was under there, my air went out. That, that, that's not normal. I've done this for thousands of hours. It doesn't normally do that. And so I breathed out a little bit more, tried to breathe in, and it sucked to my face Again, and I thought, well, that's not good. Now, in such a situation, you have an EGS, a secondary air supply. And so I ripped off my helmet, and I threw that thing in my mouth, and it didn't work either. And so here were my options. Either breathe poisonous air or put my stuff back on, holding my breath, and find my way to good air. Now, I don't know about you, but the first option didn't sound very good, and so I went back under the water and started making my way up, and to make a longer story short, I finally got to the surface, and uh, the guy started yelling at me, why aren't you underneath, Whitney, why aren't you underneath? And I said, I have no air. So they pulled me back in, and I had a conversation with the console operator, and I'll spare you most of the words, uh, but one of the things... Uh, one of the things that I kept saying over and over was, you have one book. You have, I mean, literally, his job, his job is to take one book and look at it, and then it tells him what to do. It even gives him things to do in situations where things don't go like they're supposed to. It even gives him places and room where he can flex a little bit using the wisdom and knowledge of a long, intensive uh, dive training so he can apply those things so that if this situation happens, he knows exactly what to do. Over and over, you had one book. You had one book. And because he did not follow this one book, and if I did not follow that one book, I was cut off from air that was effective to maintain life. Now, if you've been in church world long enough, you understand where I'm going with this. Because we're in a series about why we believe the Bible. And today we're looking at the fact that we believe the Bible because the Bible is sufficient. Now, what do I mean by the Bible is sufficient? Well, the Bible is adequate. Now, when we use that word adequate, sometimes we think, okay, well, it's subpar, it's adequate, it'll work. But when it comes to things that God has given us, who he's called us to be, what he wanted to accomplish, it is not just subpar or meeting the standard. It is the only thing that meets his standard. And so if there's nothing else that I teach you this morning, here's the one thing I want you guys to learn. If there's nothing else, if I hit the mark, miss the mark with the rest of the sermon, here's the one thing. Are you ready? God's sufficient salvation drives God's sufficient servant through or by God's sufficient scripture. God's sufficient salvation drives God's sufficient servant through or by, choose whichever you want, God's sufficient scripture. Now this is the message that Peter was writing to you and to me and what God is saying to you and to me through 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 2 through 15. Now, it's kind of hard to imagine the context uh, that Peter was writing to because it was a couple thousand years ago. So I know it's going to be super hard to relate to this, but some false teachers had come in and were teaching things that were contrary to what the, they had been taught. 
In fact, in chapter 2 and 3, we find out a few things. We find out that they were teaching that God's word wasn't sufficient for their life. Now, I know it's hard to imagine a culture in which such a view is prevalent, uh, but they were teaching that God's word wasn't sufficient for life. They were teaching that pursuing pleasure is the greatest goal in life. Now, again, just try to pretend that you can relate to this, that there would be a culture that's surrounded by the idea that God's word isn't sufficient and that pursuing pleasure is the ultimate goal. But then in chapter three, we also find out uh, that they were teaching that the only life that matters is my own life right Now, now once again, I know you're going to have to put your thinking cap on and figure this out. Try to connect with this. A culture that would say God's word isn't sufficient. My pleasure is the highest priority. And uh, and the only life that matters is my life right now. If you want a really fancy word for uh, this, it is called optimistic, narcissistic inclusivism. In case both of you want to know that in the room. And here's what that means. Peter's culture, they was writing to these false teachers came and they were teaching that there is not a judgment that is going to say, yes, this is what God says and no, this is what God has not said and you will suffer the consequences, both positive or negative for whether or not. There's no, it's not, it's not, uh, they include everybody, inclusive, everybody gets to go. And then secondly, uh, that my pleasure is the highest, that narcissistic, it's all about me. So God exists so that I can be whatever, God's, whatever I want to be. He's going to do that for me. That's how God exists. And then optimistic. It will work out like that. Positive outlook. Don't rain down on my parade. And you all laugh because that's exactly where we live, don't we? You see, in our culture, and listen, just so we're clear, Peter is writing, look at chapter uh, 1, verse 1. To those who have tamed a faith of equal standing with ours. He's not looking at everybody else around and saying, this is for them. He's looking at the church and saying, this is for you. Where we, me included, have a tendency to take Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven to die on a cross for you and me, and is now seated at the right hand of God to rule and reign forever and ever off of his throne, train his crown, uh, trade his crown for pom-poms, trade his righteous robe for a cheerleading outfit who stands on the sideline of Tim's life and says, go, Tim, go. What do you want? Woo! It's crazy. And so Peter is writing, yes, against the culture, but also against us who live in such a culture to say God's sufficient salvation drives God's sufficient servant through God's sufficient scripture. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, I read that because some of your translations will have a because in front of it. Some of them do not. I have the ESV. It does not because chapter, verse 2 and verse 3 are connected logically. So because, verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Did you know that when you were redeemed, God did not grant you incomplete life. He granted you incomplete life and godliness that is Jesus Christ and is now yours. You were dead and you are now alive. You were walking in darkness and are now in 
light. You were in the kingdom of the enemy, and now you are in the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You were an enemy of God and now have been reconciled to God. You were against God and are now co-heirs with Christ. This is the gospel. You have been granted all things pertaining to life and godliness, as opposed to death and corruption. Your life, which was wayward, not directed in worship towards God, this is what godliness means, is now properly directed in worship because of what Christ has done on the cross and redeeming you back. God's salvation is incredibly sufficient. It is the only thing sufficient that makes you capable of such a thing. And that's what Peter is saying. This is where it begins. You got to know that God's salvation is sufficient. It hits the standard. And it's the only thing that does. But it doesn't just stop there. This is good. Because like, we, be- we believe that. We just sang about that for like five songs. We, we believe that. But God's salvation goes even above that. Look as as Peter continues in verse three. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You not only get the life and godliness of Jesus Christ, you get the standing of Jesus Christ as well. Now let's not say that Jesus, God is making you a God. That's a pagan notion. But rather, God is making you before his throne as Jesus Christ is before his throne. Colossians chapter one, write this down. Don't worry about going to it. Beginning in verse uh, 19, uh, uh, Paul writes, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, listen to this, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So this is what it is. Not only do you get the life and now rightfully directed life of worship toward God, you also get the very standing, the very nature of God. That you were profaned and are now declared holy because of the cross. That you had blame, you were blameful and are now blameless before the throne of God. That there was a time where our accuser could stand before us and say, Tim is accusable, and my Savior now says, no, he is now inaccusable. I have redeemed him. He is mine because my salvation is sufficient. You can clap. That's good. You can do that. And that's where Peter begins. Because in this culture, where we're looking at, right? we're, we're relating to where, where Peter is writing to. This idea that God exists so to make you awesome or whatever. Peter says, well, hold on. God's salvation flies in stark contrast to that, doesn't it? And it's this motivation, if we get the gospel wrong in our lives, we're gonna, we're gonna get the, the, the idea of being a servant to God wrong. And it's this salvation that drives God's sufficient servant. But before we get there, let me ask you a question. Did you come here today 
knowing that you are sufficient when you go before God. Not of your own merit. I mean, all the things playing in your head right now go, man, no, no, not because of that. Not because, Tim, you're kidding me, not because of that. But this is the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are. And this gospel drives us to serve God. Look at, chapter, look at verse 5, rather, in 2 Peter chapter 1. For this very reason, the, the fact that we're saved, that God has redeemed us, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as we jump into this section of Scripture, seeing how God's sufficient salvation drives God's sufficient Scripture, God's sufficient servant, thanks for catching me, through God's sufficient Scripture, there's a couple of things we need to understand because this is like a really tough passage to preach. In fact, one of the things that you need to know is that the list that Peter gives is called a sorieties. Turn to the person next to you and say, this is a sorieties. Yeah, awesome, right? Now, now if whoever just told you that, turn to them and say, well, what's a sorieties? That's good. Okay, now tell them what a sorieties is. I'm just kidding. We, we, we probably use these regularly in language, but the sorieties in uh, the original language is the, uh, the, the, uh, a, a tool that takes one idea, concept, or principle, and then links it via a list of additional ideas, concepts, or principles to show that the very last idea, concept, or principle are related. So looking at this list that we have, in, uh, beginning in verse 5, all the way through, really, verse 7, what is the first thing that we see? Faith. What is the last thing that we see? Love. Now, Peter is using a sorieties to show that the faith that was wrought in you through salvation in Jesus Christ is indeed connected by characteristics to the love that you show to the world. I don't know if any of you have ever been to a, a ballet. My wife danced for 17 or 18 years. I minored in it in college. I hadn't been to a single ballet before I was married. And so we, now we go to ballets, right? December will be 10 years. I've been to a couple. She says, I want to go to the ballet. I say, well, let's go to the ballet. That's good. She likes ballets. And if you've ever been to a, a ballet recital, what happens is all of the, uh, the, the, the young ones kind of come out. There's always a, a line of, of little, you know, two, three-year-old girls. They have their little skirt, tutu two, two, two on. And uh, then there's always one boy. There just is. And he, he just <laughs> doesn't, right? Uh, and how it is. 
And so they come out and uh, the, 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 the choreographers get on stage and they stand in front of them and they go, okay, now put foot out. Music plays, they're all way off beat, but they're all just doing this. Now some of you know what I'm talking, don't, don't make me feel stupid here, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? I guess, it's, it's right, it's just, they do that, the two year, and then they kind of go on by, and then the next stage comes up, and the choreographers may be on stage with them or maybe not, but it, it, they help them through it, and then the next stage comes out, and they're, they're, they're even better and better and better until you get, finally, you go see like a, a worldwide international touring ballet, and you see the beauty that is, exult, that is, that is shown through, through practice to accurate details, right? I mean, you watch it. You might not even like ballet. I don't know anything about the ballet. We go see the Nutcracker like every year. Three guys come out and twirl. Three girls come out and twirl. They all come back and twirl together. The end, right? <laughs> like that, that's all I got. And so in this, <clears throat> in this, like I don't know anything, but my wife who knows dance, who has done ballet like forever, she knows exactly what's going on. She's not as harsh with the two-year-old girls. That would be terrible. Can you imagine that? Point your toe, right? They just learned to say toe, you know? <laughs> but when you go see something like the American Ballet Theater or some Russian whatever, whatever, and they, I don't know, they're all the same, and they come, and you look at it, and you go, ah, their foot's just turned out a little bit. I don't even know what that looks like. I just hear her say it, you know? Or their, their hand isn't, their lines are off, you know? looks good to me. But she has an eye trained for this to the details because there is beauty in the details of the choreography lived out. Now, what I think I see you thinking is, Tim, why are you telling me all this? Because the idea here, some of your translations say add to in verse 5. Mine says supplement. The idea is rooted in a choreographer. Someone who comes along, those who are doing the chorus in a in a play, there's the singers and dancers that kind of help keep the movie, the story going along, uh, that comes alongside them and supplies for them the details of what they need to get it done. Much like a choreographer watches the dancers over and over and over in, in the details of the dance in different scenes and different plays to make sure they're hitting their mark, this word, that's what this word carries. Now, some of you are lost on that, right? You're like, why are you talking to me about ballet? Okay, let's talk football. Now, this last week and this next week, the Indianapolis Colts will divide into squads to practice on separate areas that they failed to hit the mark on in the first uh, three, four preseason games. And you understand this, right? The quarterback will go with those who receive the ball and they'll throw together. The offensive line will gather together and they'll block more. And the coaches and players who've watched tape after tape after tape will look at the details, the very little things. They're not looking at Little League anymore. We'll look at the details of how they stood and whether or not their hand went out a second too early or a half a second too late or whether or not the snap went off well. And we understand this idea of choreography. Now, I tell you all that to tell you this. What Peter is saying is that God has wrought faith within you. That's, that's not your own. You're, you, you respond to that. But in this faith that he has wrought within you, 
You now, as a follower of Christ, who's been made sufficient by his salvation, are now to serve Christ in a sufficient way, and this is what it looks like. It looks like going through our life, going down these things to see that my faith does indeed impact the love that I live out. And the good thing about a psoriasis that you guys told each other about earlier is it doesn't actually matter the order of the words. What only matters is the idea that the first and last are connected. And so this isn't a chronological list, but rather Peter is saying, look, look at your life. Supplement your faith. Add to your faith. Choreograph your faith lived out so that uh, you add to your faith excellence and excellence knowledge, and maybe you need to jump to brotherly affection, and then maybe you need to go back to excellence, and then maybe you need to jump forward to self-control. But whatever it is, you're looking at your life because of God's sufficient salvation to live out your life up to the standard he's called you to that sufficient, as a sufficient servant, and looking at these de- this detail and this detail, and replaying the tape, and going, man, my toe wasn't pointed, uh, my arm didn't snap so well. This is what Peter is saying as we live out our life for Jesus Christ because of what he has purchased and who he has made us. And this is the thing. He's not doing it through a lens of what success in Christianity looks like, of what religion rather looks like according to the culture. Look at verse 8. He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So whether or not we are fruitful as followers of Christ is is, is key on how we live these out. Then look at verse 9. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Do you see how he connects salvation to living this out? Then look at verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The lens through which Peter writes, looking at verse 11, as he kind of concludes out this section, isn't what it looks like according to everybody else, how I'm supposed to be, but rather how faith working itself out in love looks in the kingdom of God. Because that's the kingdom that you and I belong to. Look back at chapter 1, verse 1, just so you know, I'm not making this up. Simon Peter, a servant of the, uh, and apostle of Jesus Christ, to of those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness, that is meeting the standard of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This whole idea of living it out, a sufficient salvation, driving a sufficient servant, is from the lens of the kingdom that you and I have been purchased into. You say, Tim, that's really good. But so what? Like, what what does that, what does that look like? Like, that'll preach, but will that live? Well, here's what it looks like today. You know, in my life, what has helped me choreograph my own faith more than just about anything else is the small group and discipleship relationships that I've been involved in. I wonder today, are you, are you in a small group? You say, Tim, I don't, 
I don't, I don't, have, I don't have time. Look, I'm, I'm not trying to throw a guilt trip on you, but man, you get to stand before people who are walking uh, or sit around with a group of people who are walking through Scripture together, and they're all failing, right? And all of us are going, man, I, I failed here. Goodness gracious, I, I did a good job there. Man, how did you do that? How did you execute that play? How did you twirl in that way to use the ballet thing? Right? I mean, just what did you do? That's what small groups do. They're beautiful. A redemptive community that we gather together in celebrating what Jesus has done, but knowing that we're working it out. And there will come a day in the kingdom of God where it is all done. But until that day, we choreograph our faith. And in this culture that believed pleasure is the greatest thing, God made me to be whoever I want to be, and he's going to help me get there, and it will work out like that, and everybody's included in that view. Peter says, no, 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 this is what you got to know. God's sufficient salvation drives God's sufficient servant through God's sufficient scripture. Now, the sermon on sufficiency of scripture, I haven't even really talked about it a whole lot. Look at verse 12, and this is, this is where this comes in, right? Look at verse 12. Peter says, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I'll make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now, this isn't a trick question, but let me ask you one. What did Peter write so that those who would be reading it would know what he was requiring, what God was requiring them to do in their culture in living this out. The Bible, right? I mean, it's so simple and so obvious. Hey, Tim, you're putting that into the text. Okay, go to chapter 3, verse 2. Look at this. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Go to chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. When Peter writes that we should keep these things in mind, that he's doing everything he can to remind us, that God's doing everything he can to remind us, he points them to scripture. Now you would say, Tim, why is it that scripture is sufficient for me to live out my sufficient life because of God's sufficient salvation? Because God and his sovereignty has chosen in his own being to show you who he is by opening your mind to the scriptures. This is God's designed path. You, know, you don't have to go sit out in a field by yourself and hope he says something. You don't have to maybe guess that the right song came on the radio in the car when you were going through a time that was somewhat relevant to what might have happened in that song. 
You can open up scripture and see exactly what God has said and what God is saying to you. Through what Paul has written, through what the apostles have written, through this canonized book that is the word of God. You might say, Tim, that's good, but he's talking about things like like virtue, like who even uses that word anymore, Uh, and self-control, and knowledge, and yeah, but what about like real life? What about about real things? Like like marriage, and family, struggles, jobs I don't like. Oh, brothers and sisters, when we walk through this book, we get to see God make all things by speaking. And that's just like chapter one. We get to watch God confront someone with sin and say, if you do this, sin is crouching at your door. You need to properly sacrifice to me. We watch the consequences. We watch Noah build an ark out of obedience to God, living a righteous life in an unrighteous culture. We watch God choose Abraham and say, come follow me. And Abraham begins walking. We get to watch him with Isaac providing a son to an infertile husband and wife. We get to watch God wrestle with Jacob as we read with him and we wrestle with God through what in the world that means for me. We get to watch God provide 12 sons and bring all of God's people into Egypt to protect them through Joseph. We get to watch as families are messed up and reunited. We get to watch as God's people stray from him and he draws them back. We get to watch prophet after prophet after prophet speak to God's people in all places and all times since the beginning of creation. Are you telling me this book doesn't apply to your life? It is sufficient not just for godliness, but for all of life. But the truth is, It's not that God's word doesn't have anything to say about real life. The truth is most of the time I just don't know what it says. So what do we do with that? A couple of things. First, if you're in here today and we started talking about the gospel, you got to know that's the beginning You can follow what God has said all day long and lead to destruction apart from salvation in Jesus Christ alone. You can look at this book and say, how to live a, I mean, I guess I should. That looks like some pretty good principles. And that's that's good. It's not bad. But goodness, the first thing you can do is just ask yourself, God, do I belong to you? You've granted to me all things that pertain to life and godliness. Is that true of your life? The second thing may be saying, man, okay, God's word is sufficient. Am I surrounding myself with people who would speak God's sufficient word into my life? Am I involved in a small group? Do I have discipleship relationships? Or rather, have I been discipled for the last 40 years and now I need to disciple somebody Else, am I putting myself in the crosshairs of the Word of God so that it can help me live out the life that He has declared as mine in the kingdom? And then, last but not least, just simply, 
Do you know the Word of God? There's a the second church I, I served in. I, uh, at, it was near the seminary I was at, and all the professors kind of went there, and the president went there forever and ever and ever, and his president before him and all that. And so when you stood up to preach, you're preaching to those who grade your papers the next day and <laughs> a little stressful. And uh, but forgiveness, I, I really harp on forgiveness and grace, you know. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, so there's a man by the name of uh, Dr. Roy Fish. He was a professor at the school I went to for about 50 years, professor of evangelism, and uh, for decades trained thousands of pastors to preach and to evangelize, uh, traveled the world, uh, sharing the gospel with people. Who knows how many hundreds of thousands he's affected through other preachers and his own preaching. Well, he was a member of our church and uh, he uh, had fallen ill and got put in hospice. They let him go home. And so uh, the pastor I served under invited me to come along, and we went along with Dr. Fish. And so one of the things I enjoy asking, and enjoy is maybe not the right word, but you know what I mean, for those who are just looking uh, at the gate that's going to open for them to walk into the arms of Jesus Christ, is... I mean, tell me, I mean, you just have, he had 92 or 93 years of life. Tell, tell me what I need to know as a young man, as a young pastor, what do you got? You've traveled the world, you're very smart, done a lot of stuff, and I'll never forget, he was sitting next to a stack of old books, and he said, Tim, I've forgotten most of what those say, but if I could go back if I could do it all again, you have one book to learn. And learn that book. Church, may we be committed to learn and apply and live what God has said to us in this one book. Because God's sufficient salvation drives God's sufficient servant through God's sufficient, only sufficient, there's nothing else, scripture. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and your truth, and God, I pray that this morning you would help us to respond as you're calling us to respond. Lord, I pray that those in here need to come to faith in you, that you've stirred up uh, faith in them, that, Father, they would respond appropriately. Lord, that you would show us what it looks like uh, to be in, in relationships and in redemptive community uh, that's encouraging one another through the word of Jesus Christ. And, Father, I just pray that in here today we would put a stake in the ground from this series to say, I will make it my life's aim to know your word to know this book. And God, thank you for the Bible that we can know you. And not just about you, but from it we know you. God, thank you for that. It's in Jesus Christ's name we ask this. Amen.